Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So tell me this, riddled me this, Batman. What if uh, what if everything was easier, just everything? You could do the laundry in a fraction of the time. The lawn mowed itself. Um, when you wanted to create something, it it was easy. You made good decisions. You you f- fulfilled those choices and it came into being I guess another way you could look at it is your cadence how long does it take you to accomplish your to-do list everything just gets easier your cadence picks up there's a cool breeze there's a whistle in your voice everything just gets easier huh what do you think you know I'm I'm super stoked about tonight's show (laughs) And the title, the title really pins it down. It's not always right to be right. And our guest tonight is Hamish Thompson. He's joining us from Sydney, Australia. And uh, I think we're going to have an excellent show. It's not always right to be right. You know, um, I don't know if I've shared this on the show recently, but... um, I, I was a chief engineer at a TV station, and uh, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And TV's a lot of money. It's a multi-billion-dollar national uh, corporation. And we were stipulated by the FCC, and so we had to be on frequency. We had to be on power. We had to be correct to be compatible with our license, which was required for us to make the money. And so compliance was real important. So it's really important that as the department leader, the chief engineer, I had to be right. What frequency are we broadcasting on? 55.25 megahertz or 55.26 megahertz? Hmm. And so there's a real culture of we're always right, we're right, we're right, we're always right, we're right, we're right. Well, this is a few decades ago, and I'm like, yeah, hmm, I'm no sproctologist, but it seems like there's a posturing going there. We have to be this, and we can't be that. We have to be this, and we can't be that. We're all, God, pick the adjectives in the social scene. I'm uh, liberal or conservative. I'm Democrat. I'm Republic. I'm this. I'm that. Adjective, verb, noun, pick them all. Um, just Get boxes and put everybody in them. That that polarization. As chief engineer, and the, this is when I was studying karma decades ago. I'm like, wait a minute. If I have to be right and I can't be wrong, there has to be power. There has to be power that I'm missing by not allowing myself to be wrong. And so I did it. It's kind of risky as, as department head. It started off in a department meeting. And I said, hey, you know what? Uh, I messed up. I, we've been working on a plan for getting HD up to the transmitter. And what I've come up with, it's not going to work. We need to rethink this. I'm sorry. It's my fault. Um, well, let's put our heads together and see if we can come up with a solution. And people were looking at each other like, uh, did he just say what I thought he just said? Has he been tipping the bottle a little bit? And the next department head meeting, I openly admitted, well, hey, you know what? I'm I'm being way conservative with this. Um, I don't think it's serving us. Let's let's loosen it up. I think I'm I'm off base here. And the curious thing that happened is when I made it okay for me to be wrong, the department head, I gave everybody in the department the permission to be wrong. Uh-oh, did I let the cat out of the bag? Did I screw up here? Well, to sum it up, um, the the department flourished. When it was okay to be wrong, people who had never contributed an idea in a department head meeting, mum's the word, you're not going to hear peep out of me, 
when I made it okay to be wrong, they would kind of nervously raise their hand and say, well, I don't know if this would work or not, but couldn't we try this? And they started contributing to the problems we were trying to solve. They were even coming in the next morning to work going, you know, I was thinking about this problem last night. What? You're thinking about work problems at home and you're bringing in solutions? Well, the morale of the department skyrocketed. It went through the roof. Productivity went up. Everybody enjoyed their jobs. There was a lot more smiles. Now, wait. Just because we had to be right. Just because we had to be right. We were paying a terrible tragedy. We were paying a, a consequence, a burden that people weren't really that happy with their job and they weren't that engaged in problems and they didn't feel that proud that something worked or didn't work. Well, all that changed. Um, enough yakking here. I want to get to it because I think uh, Heimish is going to really, uh, really bring some wonderful material. Let's get to it. Again, the topic tonight is the name of his book. It's not always right to be right. And other hard-won leadership lessons. And our guest again is Hamish Thompson from Sydney, Australia, live now. Have you ever noticed that individuals of brilliance often fall short of their true potential? Great ideas, great concepts and initiatives, but they seldom break through this, the sea of business mediocrity. Heimish, as a senior international leader with more than 30 years of corporate experience, has discovered that true transformation and breakthrough comes from personal insight. Remember we were talking about your life being easier? How about a breakthrough, a transformation in your cadence, derived not from intellectual or technical mastery, but from experience? Experience and observation of real-life occurrences. His book, It's Not Always Right to be Right, offers unique business and leadership insights, teachable models, and practical advice on what one needs to do differently to achieve desired results. Writing in a casual, autobiographical style, Hymas shares the key experiences and hard-won lessons that enable him to drive significant change when all the right ways <laughs> when all the right ways of doing things mm, didn't work. Packed with fascinating true to life stories and power uh, and powerful, oftenly uh, counterintuitive, I like that, counterintuitive lessons. This invaluable guide offers honest business and leadership lessons drawn from a long and successful corporate career. Join me in welcoming Hymish to the show. Hymish, welcome to the show. Hello, Liz. Uh, delighted to be with you. And um Thank you for uh, for sharing your story. Actually, it's uh, it's incredibly powerful. And as you were saying that, it's reminded me that not always being right is equally applicable, not only within a business sense but a personal sense. And uh, in Australia, even though I'm a Kiwi from New Zealand, but in Australia we've uh, we're probably around six months or twelve months behind the US in regard to COVID. And having my family around me, my kids around me more often than not, um, I've been told on many times on a personal front, Dad, Hamish, it's not always right to be right. So uh, <laughs> it's equally applicable business as it is personal, my friend. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I like the introduction that said often counterintuitive lessons, counterintuitive lessons. Now, now you've written a book about this and you've worked in the in the business arena. Let's start breaking some uh, uh, examples out and, and, and bring some context to this idea that it's not always right to be right and, and how that can um, be a beneficial stance. 
Yeah, I've, um, my background, uh, as per your introduction, I've probably sort of corporate lens for almost sort of 30 years advertising uh, sports and fitness throughout Europe and uh, last 20 years with the Mars Incorporated, a fair bit within the US, uh, UK and then obviously Australia as well. And probably like most young people when starting out on their career, you have this perception that you do need to be right. That's what great leaders actually do. And probably every single example that I would go through, debates, dialogues, discussions, interactions with others, I always thought somebody had to be right. There was always a winner or a loser. Um, and I was actually quite good at it, Les. It was uh, almost intellectual sparring. Um, but after a while, I started to sort of sit back and reflect and realize that it was actually incredibly limiting. My, when you think you're right the whole time, you close your mindset off of new opportunities, new possibilities. Um, and I'm an insanely curious person. And that just limitation, uh, already always listening, always thinking I'm right, was incredibly limiting. And the other ones was, I looked at a lot of my transactions and my depths of relationships that I had with people, and they were very transactional. And in my experience on business and personal, you only really get depth of breakthrough on a relationship that's based on trust and mutuality. And that normally comes after two or three experiences of interacting with people. And when you're right and there's a winner or a loser, you don't get a relationship number two. Right. <laughs> it, uh, it's over after that. And then the last one, which really sort of opened up to me in my mindset, when you're right, <clears throat> excuse me, you limit your unlocking of potential of those people around you. Nobody wants to challenge you. And in your example with your own team, um, why would they want to challenge you? Why would they want to bring you creative ideas, concepts, innovations, freedom of thought when they know they're never going to win that, uh, win that argument? So um, I think the best leaders are those who know it's not always right to be right, they show vulnerability, they conceive openly, they value the opinions of others uh, ahead of themselves, um, and it really has lead to, led to, in both business but also personal success, uh, quite a transformation in regard to results as well. Wow, I like what you're saying. Uh, you know, in the uh, while you were talking, the, the academic community and um, higher education and uh, the notion of IQ. So for example, Einstein has an IQ of a billion and so nobody can challenge him because his IQ is bigger. Nobody has anything to contribute because you have to be of at least of an equal IQ or higher to match the sentencing coming out of um, Albert Einstein, but there's this really simple saying that I love, and it says, looking at a problem, well, the expert said it was impossible. The expert analyzed the situation and said it was impossible, but the fool didn't know any better and did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you're so right in, in regard to that. And the, the amount of times over the years, and a number of your listeners would have uh, seen this as well, even those people who are unbelievably strong within technical or functional skills, very often do those capabilities really are fully optimized unless they've developed strong relationships. And it's those old sort of African proverbs, you can go very fast alone, but you can't go very far alone. Nice. And so many people actually miss those opportunities, even with creative brilliance, technical mastery, um, unless they've got those relationships where they develop and go with people who can carry that across an organization, uh, across a community, even across on a world political stage. Um, unless you develop those relationships, and that often happens by admitting, hey, listen, I haven't got all the answers and I'm not always right to be right at this stage, 
Um, that's what provides the breakthrough. And the very first, um, one of my very first sort of learnings I took within the book around relationships always being ahead of law and logic. But unfortunately, within corporate world in particular, most of your development time is spent on functional and technical skills, which are obviously vitally important, as you talk around from your you know, chief technical and engineering days. Um, they are important, but we don't spend enough time mastering relationships, how you provide true leadership value and working with others, unlocking that potential, and it's incredibly limiting otherwise. Right. Well, the, the, the untapped potential, I have to think that uh, it's got to be just, just huge, just uh, uh, how do you put a number on it? Trillions and trillions of dollars. Because uh, um, what I was saying at the beginning, the cadence, the, if, if you let everybody show up at the table, when I made it okay to be wrong, I was getting input from people that never would have uh, chimed in previously. So um, humanity is going through so much upheaval. What we need is uh, a really uh, broad stroke canvas uh, from from all the different um, arenas of, of culture to, to help us take a, a broader look at what we're trying to resolve. So um, can you give us some examples of um, from the business environment about uh, how the, these types of principles made a difference? Yes, it's certainly. And I think it's uh, every exceptional leader, they despise untapped potential. And I think that happens on a, on a regular basis and it always happens too much. And I've, I'll give you sort of an example within my own, my own experience. When I first, uh, I've done the sort of CEO gigs for probably around sort of 15, uh, 15 years in different markets. And when I first started out, my main involvement as a leader was always going first, always giving my opinions and direction um, and believing of what I thought was right. And I hired a number of people with the same attitude and mindset as myself. And unfortunately, that actually created a very limited profile of thought and diversity that came through. And a lot of people talk around sort of diversity in regard to thought, but very few people recruit within that. So probably for the last dozen years, I've followed a recruitment strategy, which I put C plus W is greater than E. So curiosity and willingness is greater than experience. And I started hiring people who were incredibly curious, and I turned that insanely curious. They often came from an outside area who had limited technical or functional knowledge, but they had fresh lens and fresh perspective. They also had a willingness and a passion to learn around the industry that they were coming into. And in my place, that was either confectionery, sports, food, um, pet care, etc. And they came into that environment with that newfound curiosity and willingness. And it's often ahead of experience. There are some roles you need to actually hire for operational excellence and experience but it really sort of challenged and opened that way of thinking. And then probably another example was when I first started out within leadership, and this is, uh, you still get this at an alarming rate, people always talk around you need to be respected as a leader. And I'm never going to disagree with that. You instantly need to ascertain as a leader respect. And this is within all walks of life, personal as well. Um, and unless you are respected, you're never going to be able to have those crucial conversations with people and people will question your ability to be followed. But the difference that I found after a while is who were those leaders who I used to go over and above my job description for? Who would I walk over coals for right. and work those extra extra time uh, allowances and those those were leaders 
who I liked. And my belief probably for a number of years now is the best leaders in my leadership style is I want to be respected, but also I want to be liked. And when you are liked genuinely by your teams and you also like those people around with you, people will do very special things. And the great leaders, I now walk over coals for my people. And there's a lot of talk and uh, writings in regard to servant leadership, but it does make a difference. And when you genuinely care, empathetic, compassionate to those people within your team, and you have a strong relationship based on trust um, and a depth of, uh, of quality of that relationship, you can have very crucial conversations. It's those conversations that you'll have with your partner, your friends and your family and your loved ones, and they're tough conversations, but they come from a position of care and you listen to those and you make a difference on it. So there's a number of different approaches that you learn over time with an experience, um, but they're probably a little bit counterintuitive from definitely the uh, your early learning days within a, a corporate leader. Right. Well, and I'm sure uh, people, there's something that happens when you put a little skin in the game. So you work for a boss and the boss is saying, well, you know, I don't have all the answers. Chime in here and and you toss out an idea and you get credit for it. It came from you and, and it gets adopted as the strategy. And, and here comes Ivan and does it sink or swim? I mean, there's a critical mind again. And uh, so now the employee's got some skin in the game. I mean, his ideas or hers ideas literally um, steering what the department's doing. And then the success and or failure has much more meat to it because you know what I mean? It's, it's like you've got some skin in that. Yeah. It's a, I, I refer to that Les, as what I term almost like a shared agenda and it's a collective um, opportunity, but also responsibility. And it's amazing when you provide that opportunity and a little bit of freedom to somebody and autonomy um, how often they actually surprise you and flourish <laughs> to an amazing degree. Your story to start with, talking around these ideas that people are thinking overnight, when you give them that opportunity to input, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that the one thing that um, is, is talked around a lot, but it doesn't actually happen too often, is this concept of a leader allowing failure and embracing failure. And we talk around us and you want to sort of, you may mention into your teams and uh, you know, even within your kids, it's okay to fail. I want you to take sort of risk, get out of your comfort zone, et cetera. But unless you provide the psychological safety to do that, right. um, it can be very short lived. And when I talk around psychological safety, it essentially means that you allow somebody to fail and if they do fail, you actually celebrate that. You celebrate that there are learnings and insights that are taken out of it. You recognize the boldness of trying something different. But as a leader, you don't demand perfection and you don't actually start directing and telling people how to do a task. You coach and you support them through it. And as long as, in my experience, as long as people do take insight out of it and learn from their failure, they'll always be so much better. Um, but you have to provide that psychological safety. And as a leader, that's incredibly difficult at times that you have to step back and realize, um, gee, okay, even though I would have done things differently within this way, you need to provide that freedom or autonomy. And that's about situational leadership. When you jump in, get your hands dirty and need to actually direct somebody, but majority of times, step back, let them do it their way and let them experience it and learn within their own remit uh, and their own way of being. I like that, give them the flexibility of how it gets done. Well, now... If you get if you give them flexibility on how it gets done, what about flipping that over and giving flexibility 
to the metric that is used to measure success. Because so often in business, that can be money. Did we make a profit? Did we make more than last time? Did, and the monetary measuring stick is a, a very common management strategy. But if indeed we loosen up the metric of what success is, what if we didn't make that much money, but the team feels so much more connected and the next project they're going to be handling with much more ease, and now the company's more powerful, but that didn't show up in the accounting books or the bottom line, so maybe giving wiggle room to the measurement of success. I, I like that very much, and uh, there's a terminology that talks around leading and lagging indicators. And a lagging indicator is normally a financial metric that comes out, um, a revenue figure, an earnings figure, or a cash figure. But often, as you've described there, the, the leading indicator could be something as simple as your depth of relationship that you've developed with others, your learning or your insight that you've taken out. And as, as I said earlier, Liz, that... When I first started out, I used to measure a transaction purely on those lagging indicators of, did I win? Did I achieve X percentage growth or X percentage in regard to profit? I now try and view my transactions on the measurement of, has my depth and quality of relationship actually improved as a result of this transaction? Um, and generally, if it has, I know I've got a relationship that will be free of baggage, is not going to have limiting beliefs, the possibilities of opportunity from both sides, very neutral, will be looked at so much more strongly. So in relationship and transaction two and three, it'll be so much more stronger than before. So I like that flexibility in regard to, to metrics on that. And it's almost a, a guideline that you have. I will put on my, my corporate hat and say <laughs> that you still need to be very firm in regard to what we're actually chasing. But most importantly, as long as you learn on the way. And I, I think just one thing that um, you've reminded me about the sort of learning and insight there's a big difference between self-awareness and self-development. And a lot of people are aware of their shortcomings when you fail or when you get pointed out a blind spot. So one of mine, for example, was um, my level of impatience. I'm a very dissatisfied person. I'm always wanting to do things that are new, different, excites me. Um, and I was aware of that, but I didn't actually self-develop. And I used to get that same feedback. Um, it's exciting to be around you, Hamish. You've got new ideas, initiatives, and it's always sort of, uh, okay, what's next? However, you do get very impatient within that. And I was told that probably for two or three years in a row. And it's, always, it's all very well and good being self-aware, but how do you actually self-develop that? So probably the last sort of dozen or so years, of, uh, I know my triggers in regard to impatience when I'm jumping in early, trying to solve an issue early. When I get agitated, <laughs> I haven't got that patience sort of level. So knowing those triggers now, I step back. I'm very seldom within a leadership team environment. Will I speak first? I'm actually the last to actually speak. I try and seek to understand before being understood and I start up with a mindset of trying to value the opinions of others ahead of myself. And that's the type of self-development that is important. So uh, as long as you get that balance, I think it's, uh, it's, it's key in regard to uh, ongoing improvement, which will, which will never stop. Which will never stop. 2020 and, and beyond really kind of turned many industries on their heads like convention centers, big conventions for industries just stopped and and perhaps are they're back running again. But um in in times of such dramatic change in the business environment, that's the perfect time to get 
uh, fresh input because the old narrative's not going to work. I mean, if if the industry shut down, you're not going to load the truck up like you did last month and drive off and 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 have a convention because the building's going to be empty. I mean, what I'm getting at is the it seems like there's so much uh, turmoil and change in many narratives, including business, including the the workforce. And to bring these ideas um, and and have a diversity of of what could happen because everybody's got to change the lane they've been in it. I mean, the old systems doesn't work and new systems are going to, are going to be decisive. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was, I was interviewed probably three years ago. It was a, um, I think it was a McKinsey or a Bain or BCG, one of the big sort of consultancy firms. They asked um, multinationals, the CEOs, um, a series of questions. And one of the outcomes uh, that came out was, I think it was 90% of CEOs felt incredibly nervous around the major disruption that was going to happen within their business model over the next three to five years. Wow. However, they only invested on average 10% of resources to try and get ahead of that curve. And that always sort of struck with me there. So knowing the massive change is happening, and change is constant. They talk around that VUCA and super VUCA, which your listeners probably know about everything being sort of volatile and uncertain and complex, et cetera, and ambiguity. Um, It's always been there, but the pace of change is accelerating. Now, knowing that, but not investing ahead of the curve, and that, I think, is very key. And COVID, to me, it's done probably three things that everyone is aware of um, at all sizes of business, from a startup, uh, a small, medium enterprise, to a massive multi, uh, multinational. They've been forced to do new ways of working. And obviously, if you think around that, from just even remote teleworking, et cetera, they've embraced new technology and digital formats on how they interact with customers and consumers and a lot of them have actually changed their business model. So what they were doing yesterday that had great revenue and profitable streams has changed completely. So they really, the great companies invest ahead of the curve and started to fix things before they were broken. And I can't help myself, as I said, Liz, I'm a New Zealander and the Kiwis, we, we love rugby. And uh, we had a great uh, uh, World Cup winning coach a few years ago, Sir Steve Hansen, and he said this quote that always resonates with me, you don't need to lose to learn, but it sure helps. And I love that concept, but to me, it's how can you get ahead of that curve and you learn without needing to lose. And when you lose, we know you dig deeper and you look and you uh, analyze and you scrutinize. Um, But how can you get ahead of that curve? And I have a concept talking around investing about future capabilities and competencies um, today that you need tomorrow. But there are models and specific processes to be able to do that. But you're, you're so true. Um, how do you control and lead your agenda without having to actually <laughs> learn through a very painful experience? Well, and and sometimes the painful experience is the elephant in the room. Like uh, what came to mind was um, SpaceX was looking to make uh, rockets and they were looking at carbon fiber as the manufacturing technique to make these rockets. And they invested a lot of money and they're building prototypes and they're building tanks and they're using this kind of uh, fiber carbon, carbon fiber. And uh, Elon Musk, said, uh, this is wrong. This is not going to get us where we want to be. 
And he took this gigantic corporate effort and just scraped it in the trash in a very short period of time. We're not going to do carbon fiber. And all their research, all their effort um, became null and void. And now he makes his rockets out of stainless steel. And either this month or next month, he's going to be launching the largest rocket ever made in the history of mankind. Um, and yet he was willing to scrape so much R&D into the trash. So if a company's trying to reposition itself with so much change happening in the business marketplace, uh, the, there's some value in being able to recognize that what you're actually trying to do is not going to get you where you want to go. If it, to, to be able to have the insight to see that the effort is not going to get you there, something else has to happen, that can be a tough call. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? And particularly those businesses and individuals who have had success in the past, it's very difficult to actually change your mindset. I had a, uh, an old boss within Asia-Pacific, uh, Samson Suen, I always remember he said, Hamish, your mind works like a parachute, best when open. <laughs> and uh, it really sort of, uh, it just reminded you that even if you've had success in the past, it, it is no guarantee of success in the future. When I hear stories around of Elon Musk, et cetera, these are individuals who they know that the way that they've done things in the past will not get them in the, in the future. I... Uh, I've introduced to my teams for a number of years now a concept which I call the 30% rule. And it means that you set a target, and in this case, just hypothetically 30%. And the only way to achieve that target is to do something completely different. Your current ways of working, your current capability and competency set, it's impossible. So it's a stretch target that forces you to look outside, to value external perspectives, new adjacencies, extremities of different options. But time and time again, you look at new ways of doing things that takes you completely outside of your comfort zone and it actually builds muscle memory of new insights, new learnings. But it is difficult for people, particularly as I said, when you've had historical success, and it's a little bit like, Les, people always talk around amazing cultures within companies. And I used to undervalue the importance of a culture within a company, um, but it's so important. It's like a community group. Um, it's like a sporting team. You can't undervalue cultures at all. However, a great culture has a curse, and the curse is it's very difficult to change. And... That's again, it's like a business historical success. Um, you need to be open to evolving cultures, evolving ways of working, and particularly evolving your mind. And as you were talking earlier around karma, um, that freeing up of your mind and allowing new creative expression and thought, it's incredibly powerful, um, but it's, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. Well, I... I was wanting to kind of tie this topic into the the individual. I mean, the listener, the listener right now listening to the show. The when when I started the show out talking about personal cadence, how long does it take you to do the laundry? And I'm not trying to make a me, a, a metric to quantify good or bad or otherwise. Obviously, because of the show, I'm not trying to quantify a a, a particular outcome. But I know, I know that there's so much untapped potential in all of us. How can we take these principles and kind of take a step back in our own life and say, you know, how I'm trying to accomplish this or how I'm trying, how I'm trying to accomplish that? There might be a better dynamic, a better narrative that um, it would be worth my while to step back and take in. How could this be reflected into our own personal lives? Yeah, I always sort of look at it as though if I sort of step back and there's been so much written in regard to authenticity, um, yet very seldom 
are people actually 100% authentic? And I do believe the importance of being true to yourself, true to what works for you as an individual, as a leader, I think unlocks that uh, potential. And probably like many people, I've gone through different stages where, particularly within a work sense, that I was a different Hamish Thompson at work as I was to a Hamish Thompson at home. And it's amazing the amount of people who are actually like that. And it's, it's a common story, but I think it's a very sad story in many ways. When you have, in my experience, when you have two Hamishes, it's incredibly tiring. You, even though you may not be disingenuous to others, you feel as though you are. Right. And when having to put on a different persona, it's incredibly tiring. It's incredibly uh, draining with it within that side. So the idea of establishing yourself as this is the type of, this is my leadership brand. This is what I stand for. When I'm at my best, this is how I actually interact. And it's the importance of doing that is incredibly liberating for you when you can just be naturally yourself. And that comes back to if you're a leader and you allow others to be 100% authentic, that's when you're going to get the best out of people. They are going to provide their immediate challenge, their immediate input, their immediate fresh perspective and diversity of thought. And it's a little bit like a leadership team, as I said, I don't want people thinking like me. I want people to think differently from me. I want them to challenge me. And that's where diversity of gender, race, cultural um, mindset is incredibly valuable because it just adds a whole new perspective and that brings out that insanely curious element. So the idea of being so authentic, I think, is, uh, is incredibly important. And then the other one, which I, I think is important, my side, Les, is uh, I term life-work balance as opposed to work-life balance. Um, and I heard this concept years ago from the head of Unilever, who's a very purposeful and driven individual, Paul Pullman. And it's not always the case for some people, but in my side, um, I work to live, not the other way around. And I'm not saying that's right for everyone, but I know for me to be at my very best at work and to unlock all my untapped potential, I have to have excellence in life at the same time. And whether that's spirituality, uh, financial, uh, health and fitness, nutrition, etc., whatever their relationships, community links, whatever that is, I know that unless I'm at my best on a personal front, I will never be at my best on a work front. And being at my best on the work front means being 100% authentic as well. And your job as a leader, you have to allow other people to have that balance and you have to role model that balance um, of authenticity as well. And I think those things can really help unlock people to be their very best. And great leaders detest untapped and dormant potential. Hamish, I believe you've been pulling my leg because you're, you're talking really good karmic uh, narrative right down the line. <laughs> I, I think you know more about it than you let on to. The, the tagline to New Human Living, this is the New Human Living radio show, is pure authentic you. Pure authentic. I agree with you completely. The, the the magic of authenticity. If I like the metaphor of you're watching, you're in the back of a boat and you're watching the wake, and the wake of a boat can be really smooth and graceful because the boat is moving through the water gracefully. And the wake of a boat can be very tumultuous and turbulent um, because it's not moving through the water gracefully. It doesn't matter why. But the I suggest, uh, and you described it quite well, authenticity. When you're authentic to yourself, you leave no wake. You don't. There's there's minimal turbulence in your wake, and so you move through life with grace. 
And when you move through life with grace, there's no fatigue to your persona. So you become sustainable over time by staying authentic, if that makes sense. Gee, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And, uh, I've, uh, I've got a couple of frameworks to talk around when you get in the flow. And a lot of athletes, uh, corporate athletes, uh, learn this. And they, they, some people term it the comfort zone or the flow zone. And it just means when things come naturally for you. And as you say, you don't need that wake and that turbulence around there. Life can be hard enough as it is. Um, not with adding another burden of thinking that you need to be somebody else. So right. uh, I, like, uh, I, 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 I like that very much. The other one, Liz, which links to that a little bit, it doesn't work for everyone, but I, um, I have a chapter within the book that I term uh, drains and radiators. And it's an interesting one that for years and years, I used to always encourage uh, engagement setting and cultural programs and I had the motivational posters <laughs> all around the <laughs> office etc and we used to have a lot of feeling forums and things and it was it was great and we did a number and I've always believed in mindful, mindfulness and meditation sort of training and health and well-being and I'm, I'm even I'm part of a uh, mental health and suicide prevention um, I'm a board member within one of Australia's largest foundations, and I love all those elements. But one of the things, even above every one of those programs, is this concept around surrounding yourself with radiators versus drains. And it is important that, and just just to give concept, a drain is what it says. It's a, <laughs> It's individuals who suck the lifeblood out of possibility. There's always limiting beliefs. There's negativity involved. Um, and they bring people down. And it's actually, unfortunately, it spreads like wildfire and a negativity across an organization. And that creates those ripples of discord. Right. Um, in your case, that wake of the back of a boat. Whereas a radiator, they're not a Pollyanna. They still challenge and they provoke. But... They want to see a better result. They think possibility. They think can-do attitude. They think of that 30% rule and that possibility, and they bring people with you. So we all have drain moments. There's no doubt around it. We've probably all got friends and often family members and colleagues who are drains, but it's important that you surround yourself with that positivity element, um, and that, to me, leads through allowing you to be actually a better version of yourself, um, but also it leads to a lot better sort of uh, results on that sense as well. So it was just a, uh, it was a good reminder for me of that. And I've got recruitment methodologies on how to go after that as well. Very nice. Well, now to talk about um, what you're doing now, um, who do you like to work with? What's your, what's your model client? Yeah, my, my main element now is that, and this is uh, a lot of psychological studies over the years. Uh, I think one of the best one was a, I think he's Austrian, uh, Eric Erickson. And he talked around sort of different stages and decades of your career progression. And uh, one of those stages is around starting to realize that it's not really all about yourself. There's a bigger purpose within the world and it's about others. And unfortunately, you normally only get that into sort of your 40s or so. And uh, I uh, wish I'd got that a little bit earlier within my career. And I've started now, Les, that um, I'm really inspired, motivated and driven um, always by results-oriented people who wanted to make uh, a difference. But now is more around purposeful elements. And um, this came back to me years ago. The head of Mars Inc. at the time, a chap called Grant Reed, is a Scottish bloke and very talented. But he said the quote that performance without purpose is meaningless, wow. and, perform and then purpose without performance is impossible. And I truly believe that, that if you're wanting to make a difference within the world and a wider impact, 
you need to be very efficient and effective in what you do. And as I said, even this, uh, uh, my board uh, membership with uh, this uh, suicide prevention and mental health group, you need to be effective and very efficient in what you do to be able to allow yourself to have a wider impact, to reach and a penetration, to improve the lives of more people. So I truly believe that corporations, companies have a responsibility to be purposeful, but I think they also have a massive opportunity to be purposeful. And it's interesting now, the the fund performance, and obviously share market is, is not in a good state at the moment. I uh, follow that sort of daily within the US. But uh, at the moment, uh, the recent studies is I think the top third performing uh, funds were ethically led funds where performance and purpose go hand in hand. So that's the, that's the type of sort of businesses and approaches that I, uh, that I like uh, getting involved with. And individuals, as long as they are driven, they're purposeful, but are open to new ways of learning um, and have that parachute uh, mindset, um, that's the bit where I really get energized about. Well, the, the, I imagine it's a bit of a dance in the sense that, I mean, sure, to be open to new ideas and new dynamics and, and new outcomes, but, you know, like at the end of the day, if you're a parachute company and you evolve yourself out of a functional parachute, uh, that there could be some problems with that. I mean, <laughs> it's it's uh, to keep the – how do you hold the baton of what the company, quote, sh- should be, unquote, as far as services provided, if those services that are provided are the very thing that needs to change? Well, I think that it goes back a little bit around this element around not needing to lose to learn um, and how you actually stay ahead of that curve. So I've always been one sort of, I think, probably 20 years ago um, when I was at Reebok uh, International. And I remember we spent, I think it was one week within uh, just outside of Boston. And it was with a group called Landmark. And um, I think they even had a, some small link into Scientology at the time, but none of us were aware of anything and how they sort of looked at the world. But one thing that they did do was always a future-oriented um, position and mindset and then working back. And I, uh, I can't recall any of the other sort of philosophical elements, but this has stayed with me for life that... I now will always look out. I used to look 20 years out, but I think that's just crazy. But I always have a three to five year position of where I believe the industry, the sector, the societal, the consumer trends, macro and micro conditions will place a business within three to five years time. And that's where I said around that interview, 90% of CEOs realize that there's going to be a major disruption, but they only invest 10% of resources. Right. So how do you commit more resources and get ready for that future element? And this cultural element of being a very adaptive culture, a very agile, um, being able to pivot with pace is really important. So you don't want to risk everything because you never want to walk away from a core profit sector And it's also always encourage people definitely move if you're not happy within a work environment, um, but ideally secure something before you move. So you do it on your own terms. You walk away with it. And occasionally there'll be times where you need a complete break, but exactly like evolving a business position, you don't throw everything out to call revenue or profit position because you're very good at that, but you need to start thinking at the same time. And importantly for leaders, and I do view this in a personal life as well, how do you allow yourself the time to step back and reflect? And in the corporate language, how do you allow yourself to be on top of the business as opposed to in the business? But even on a personal sense, as opposed to the daily transactional elements, how do you allow yourself the freedom and time and thought leadership to be transformational 
And it's a tough balance to do, particularly as you get immersed within all the operational you know, crap that happens every day. Um, how do you allow yourself to actually step back and, uh, and do that? And that's where I think the, uh, the best leaders, but also the most balanced leaders who are composed, always seem to have time on the ball, getting ahead of that curve. Um, I think they have that, uh, that correct balance. Very nice. Well, we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, share with our audience how they can get your book and share your website. And please spell it out. It might not be obvious, at least here in the States. Um, share that, please. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Les. And, uh, as I said, I, was, uh, I, wasn't, uh, I definitely didn't think I'd become a leadership author within that. But uh, I managed to uh, have a very good relationship with Wiley Publishing. So uh, the book's internationally available. Um, so probably the best bet like ever is uh, through sort of Amazon. Uh, but it's called It's Not Always Right to Be Right. And it's Hamish Thompson. And the Thompson is T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Um, and my website is simply Hamish R, which is my middle name, Randall, uh, Hamish R. Thompson, uh, dot com. And it's, uh, I do, I, uh, I enjoy the connections I have with different people. So even through a LinkedIn or, uh, or visit me on the website, uh, but more than happy to, uh, to assist and add value uh, where I can because um, it's been new and inter- new and interesting in, the, in this uh, in this sort of world. Whether I'll carry on being an author, different story. I love the experience, but uh, three months of edit process. Um, yeah, I think I'm. Uh, <laughs> I think that was a bit that was a bit challenging for me, and I think I need to join you in Colorado and relax a little bit on that front. Well, very nice. Well, Hamish, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Les, and uh, I hope you uh, keep um, keep thriving and inspiring others. We've been talking with Hamish Thompson, and again, the topic tonight is the title of his book, It's Not Always Right to Be Right. You know, just revisiting that notion of your own personal cadence Um, Although we've talked about the potential, the power, the untapped potential in a business environment, it 100% applies to you in a personal environment. It's the evolution of consciousness itself. The, The essence of ourselves can play out any archetype or narrative we can conjure up for ourselves, but if we don't we don't take the time to self-reflect. If we don't take the time to open up to a, a new dynamic, of course, nothing is required. We can go stick our head in the sand if we so choose. But if we were to choose to be um, reflecting on who we are and how we get how how we proceed with what we're doing, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to put a lot of uh, connotations to a right or a wrong but your life purpose you're here to pull off some kind of magic that that you're hardwired for uh, to to reflect on that and and to open up to your heart and your your heart and your soul's inspiration that might guide you guide you into a new narrative that picks up your cadence and your uh, you're enjoying life more, and there's a, a better wake to your boat. There's a little more grace to the water, to, a little more grace to how you're moving through your life. Um, that can make all the difference in the world. Hey, you showed up for yourself. You, the listener, are here, right here, right now, and I applaud you for that. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Thanks for spending this time with us. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.